This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Before I even saw any inmates in the yard, I knew something was wrong. And they're just kind of in the air. I could feel it. And I just knew something was wrong. The second thing I saw standing about who clapped to me was the fact of the way he handled riots and disturbances out there. You have to move fast, and he did. But, uh, the inmates were dissatisfied. I think the administration really didn't see it coming, and it just uh, it just ignited. It got interesting that night. And I used to take my tear gas gun and go down and sit my cage down there and uh, keep peace, you know. <laughs> there was enough up there that knew that I maintained discipline and that no rioting would be permitted or somebody was going to be killed. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Stool Pigeon Saturday, Disturbing Justice Edition. This week's episode is featuring our very own Sky. It's me. Surprise. <laughs> ah, Are you tired got... of hearing me yet? <laughs> Never. <laughs> What are we going to talk about today? Okay, so we are going to talk about one of our female inmates, um, which may seem a little bit out of place, but you'll see why we're including her in this season of Stool Pigeon Saturdays, because it's a a heck of a story. It's It's fun. All right, so today we are talking about number 3691, Mary Crumroy. So sources, of course, her inmate file, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com, and even articles that I found on Ancestry that were uploaded by, like, her family. Um, The book Go West, Young Women, The Rise of Early Hollywood by Hilary Hallett, an article by Gilbert King from the Smithsonian Mag.com called The Skinny on the Fatty Arbuckle Trial, and then Wikipedia pages of Roscoe Arbuckle, Virginia Rapp, and Jane Toppin. Nice. Why, why are you laughing and making those faces? I, I just love the the name, the skinny on Oh, yeah, Fatty the skinny Arbuckle. on Fanny Arbuckle. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Mary Crumroy was born in August 1879, but she did claim 1882 on her intake form. It is also sometimes listed as 1880, mm-hmm. um, which is why I think it's closer to that 1879 date. Mm-hmm. There are several other no- unknowns about Mary. We just don't know that much about her. The 1910 census, as well as her intake form, lists her birthplace as Ohio. And in that census, she claims that both of her parents were born in Ohio. But then in the 1920 census, she lists her birthplace as West Virginia and lists her parents' birthplace as West Virginia. I think it seems more likely that she was born in Ohio. Um, Her marriage record is from Ohio, but I'm not totally sure. I could not find any solid evidence of her maiden name or the rest of her family. Her marriage record lists her name as, uh, her maiden name as Mary I. Cramblett. Hmm. And believe it or not, Cramblett was an oddly common name in Ohio in the late 19th century because I was like, oh, I'll just find her real quick. There were a lot, um, which was very strange. I did not expect that. There is one ancestry record, which is the 1880 census. It seems it would most likely be her, but I can't be totally sure. But if this record is true, she was born in 1879 to Elisha and Lydia Cramblett in Wooster, Ohio, and she was the second youngest of five kids. She had older brothers, Silas and John, and then older sister Daisy and a younger sister, Ellen. 
Her father was a laborer and her mother was a housekeeper, which is very typical for the time. But this family never appears in available census records or really any other records that I could find after that. Hmm. So I don't, I don't know, I can't be sure that this is her. Right. So according to her intake form, she attended school for six years and she could read and write. She claims she left her family at 16 years old. We don't know why she would have left at that age. The most definitive date that I could find for her pretty much in her whole early life is her marriage record to a man named Madison Arbuckle from November 9th, 1898 in Guernsey, Ohio, when she was about 18 years old. Madison was 17 years her senior and a farmer. Their son Clarence was born in 1899 and at the time Mary was only about 19. Their daughter Myrtle Wilma was born in 1901. Their last son Wilmer was born in 1903. And in the 1900 census, there's actually another 13-year-old girl listed as living with Madison and Mary, and her name is also Mary. So there are two Mary Arbuckles in the house. The census lists this younger Mary as the daughter of the head of the household, Uh, but she's only eight years younger than our Mary, therefore making it impossible for her to be Mary's daughter. And this younger Mary does not appear in the 1910 census, and that is because our younger Mary married a man named William Lutz in 1907. And so it took some digging for me to figure out where and how she fit. So according to the younger Mary's marriage record, her mother's name was Hannah Webster, who again, after doing some digging, I found had married Madison G. Arbuckle on September 8th, 1887. I couldn't find definitive proof, but it seems most likely that Hannah died um, at some point, not sure when. So then it appears that our Mary was immediately a stepmother when she first got married, and this is a role that she would have more than once in her life. Now, there is actually an interesting note, is that when he married Hannah Webster, he listed his age as 21, and then when he married Mary, he also listed his age as 21. But I don't know why. Is it a misprint? He's 35 when he marries Mary and surely a 35-year-old man doesn't look young enough to pass off as a 21-year-old, but maybe. I mean, stranger things have happened, I'm sure, but I just thought that that was really interesting. So anyway, (laughs) around 1913 or perhaps before, she says that her mother, was it Lydia Cramblett? I don't know. But anyway, she said that her mother died from pneumonia, but she and her siblings would have been well-grown by the time her mother died. So by the 1920s, the Arbuckle family moved to Springfield, Illinois, and there Madison died between 1920 and 1923. So a Daily Statesman article from September 20th, 1926 said that he died in a mine accident in Pennsylvania, but there was no date given and there was no other mention in any other papers about his death. But that's because there was another big thing going on involving an Arbuckle in the early 20s. It was a huge scandal coming out of Hollywood, and it was the Fatty Arbuckle scandal. Do you know about this? I don't. I want to (laughs) know. You just really like the name. I love the skinny on Fatty, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so just a warning before we get started. This scandal deals with rape and possible manslaughter, so if those issues are sensitive to you, please consider skipping ahead, um, or if you're listening with sensitive ears. Um, But this was actually kind of a a big scandal, kind of one of the original Hollywood scandals. Well, I take back my laugh. 
Yeah. So you know. <laughs> I mean, the fun, the name is funny. It's yeah. There is a reason he was called that. So Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was one of the most popular silent film comedians of the late 1910s and early 1920s. And so to give you an idea of how popular he is, over the previous three years up to 21, Paramount, which was his studio, paid him an unprecedented $3 million to star in 18 films. And in the summer of 1921, his current film, which was called Crazy to Marry, M-A-R-R-Y, um, was playing in theaters to great success. Success. And so Fatty was an unflattering, though perhaps apt, nickname as he was roughly 300 pounds. However, he never wanted to use his weight as part of physical comedy. Like he never wanted to get stuck in a doorway or in a chair. Like it was, he did use it. Like it was sort of part of his comedy, but he didn't want to do it at his detriment. He's got a friend in the early, in 1921, his name is Fred Fishbach, and Fred is planning a big Labor Day party at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco, and Roscoe actually almost didn't go because as a few days before, he was getting his car serviced in Los Angeles, and he accidentally sat on some acid-covered rags, Mm -hmm. and so then he received second-degree burns to his buttocks and the back of his legs, which is crazy. But Fishbach talked him into it, and he actually padded um, the seats of his car so when they left, he wouldn't be as uncomfortable. So they check into the hotel, and on September 5th, 1921, Roscoe awoke to find that he had many uninvited guests in the suites adjoining his own, and some of those guests were Prohibition-era alcohol, as well as a young actress. Her name was Virginia Rapp. Now, Virginia Rapp was a 26-year-old from Chicago, and she made a name for herself as a model, a clothing designer, an aspiring actress, and as a party girl. So supposedly, she suffered from chronic uh, cystitis, or basically what are chronic urinary tract infections. And this is a condition that is often exacerbated by alcohol. So according to sources and and they weren't fully named but she developed sort of a reputation for over imbibing at parties and then drunkenly tearing at her clothes because of the physical pain that this was causing and so this is not a great reputation that has developed and there's a lot of speculation still to this day about what is it that's going on and this is going to come into question. Were the people around her aware that she had this? Um, or? That's a good question. I think at least her friends were. I okay. think she developed sort of this reputation of a party girl from the people who didn't know that, that it just seemed like right. she was just drunk all the okay. time. That, and when you and, said that, yeah. I was like, was that a normal thing for people to like, oh, I got a right. UTI, like I have to start yeah, taking my I, clothes off. Well, I think it just hurt yeah. so much in, in her <sighs> stomach area that it, because you know, like, Like, I used to have gallstones, and they were so painful that, like, you can't sit still. And there's just, like, there's nothing, no position that you can be in that that eases the pain. And so I'd imagine it's something very similar. That's how bad it is. And and to people aware of the Mm -hmm. pain, they're like, oh, you shouldn't. But people who aren't right are like, that she's just at she's these parties and bluesy. totally and that's going to come okay. into play later where people just think oh she's just super drunk okay. but by the time roscoe and she sort of meet up she's not in this state yet she's totally fine and she and roscoe and the other guests are having a good time it's labor day labor day 1921 so prohibition i mean every sort of everything you can imagine like a great gatsby party everyone everything everyone wanted 2020 to be is like what you can imagine was actually going on but things would go quickly wrong when virginia is found seriously ill in one of the party suites and they call up the hotel doctor who says oh she's just super intoxicated she'll get better but two days later she is hospitalized she has not gotten any better 
So at the hospital, the doctors talk to Virginia's friend named Maude Delmont, and she tells the police that Roscoe and Virginia had been drinking together when he pulled her into adjoining room and said, quote, I've waited for you five years and now I've got you. Maude claims that she heard Virginia screaming in the room, but was unable to open the locked door to help her friend. And soon after, apparently, according to Maude, Roscoe came to the door with Virginia's hat on his head, cocked at an angle, and smiling while Virginia moaned on the bed behind him. Virginia died on September 9th from a ruptured bladder, and newspapers claimed that, and again, here's sort of a more graphic uh, detail, that newspapers claimed that Roscoe's weight caused her bladder to rupture, during a sexual assault. Roscoe actually turned himself in and was held in jail for three weeks, but he told a very different story than Maude Delmont. He claimed that he had had a few drinks with Virginia before she became, quote, hysterical, complaining that she couldn't breathe and trying to tear off her clothes. He stated that he had never been alone with Virginia after finding her in the bathroom vomiting. He said himself and several other guests attempted to revive her from what they thought was intoxication. And he said, I actually have witnesses to this series of events. Still, Arbuckle was charged with manslaughter, and the newspapers continued to print Maud Delmont's version of events. So, obviously, they get an autopsy done, um, and medical evidence showed that Virginia had a chronic bladder condition, but, quote, no marks of violence on the body, no signs that the girl had been attacked in any way. Though Roscoe's legal team had people such as Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton testify for Roscoe's character, Roscoe actually asked that witnesses with damaging information about Virginia's past not testify out of respect for the dead. The first trial ended in a hung jury, 10 to 2 for acquittal, and the second trial also ended in a deadlock. So finally, during the third trial, despite really wanting to to respect Virginia and her character, he finally had to allow the damaging testimony against her just to try to get a conclusion to the case. So on April 12th, 1922, the jury acquitted Roscoe of manslaughter after just five minutes of deliberation. However, so even though he gets off, the scandal had seared itself into the public's mind and Hollywood would never be the same. And historian Hilary Hallett in that book, Go West Young Women, which I've used, I think I've read like every year since I started grad school, she directly ties the Arbuckle scandal to the creation of censorship codes that ruled films from 1930 to the 1960s before modern day rating systems came in. So this is a huge scandal involving someone named Arbuckle, which is why typing in Arbuckle in the early 1920s got me absolutely nowhere. <laughs> Could not find anything about uh, <laughs> Madison Arbuckle. <laughs> that that ended out way different than what I was expecting when you introduced it. I was like, oh, man, I looked at his face and he looks he like looks so such nice. a good, wholesome, I know. Like, jolly person. And yeah. sure enough, he actually... Right, he probably is. Yeah. yeah, so he, um, he ended up, if I remember correctly, he kind of tried to get back into Hollywood, mm. but, you know, his, his reputation was kind of tarnished and he actually ended up dying of a heart attack uh in the early 30s um so yeah what a rabbit hole i know i know (laughs) i was like this is anthony would do this and plus (laughs) it's like something that i really am excited about and i know a lot about so it was like fun for me to (laughs) explain that to you and to the listeners So anyway, that's why I couldn't, I really could not find anything about Madison Arbuckle and his death in the Pennsylvania mines. So regardless, he died sometime between 1920 after the census was taken and before the end of 1923. 
And we know it's before the end of 1923 because likely by the end of that year, Mary is ready for love again. And she goes about finding it through cross-country correspondence. So according to an article from the Washington, D.C. Evening Star from September 27th, 1926, Mary signed up with a, quote, matrimonial agency, which put her in touch with Carl Crumroy from Minidoka County, Idaho. Now, Carl was actually a pretty good-looking German immigrant. I've seen pictures of him, and I was like, he's not bad. Not bad looking at all. <laughs> um, he was born in 1878, and he immigrated to the United States in 1892. On January 22nd, 1900, Carl married Lydia Bart in Culbertson, Nebraska. The family originally settled in Nebraska before moving to Paul, Idaho in 1917, and they had four kids, Liata, Irvin, Warren, and Weldon. Now, on February 22nd, 1922, Lydia tragically passed away from acidosis, which is a condition where body fluids contain too much acid after complications from surgery, um, which is, sounds horrible. It sounds so oh, painful. That's, that is horrible. Horrible. I feel like... This is a rough episode yeah, already yeah. of just like... And it, oh, it doesn't it, get it. Yeah, no, it does not. <laughs> So, um, after this tragic death, according to a 1981 newspaper article by John Alton Croner, who worked at the Argus Observer in Ontario, Oregon, Carl, quote, turned to the Lonely Heart Pulp magazines and put an ad in one of them, which amply stated his desires for a wife. Um, And this article was actually posted by user Miller1506. So, if you happen to be listening, thank you so much for uploading that. That was quite helpful. So, Apparently, in his correspondence through the Lonely Hearts magazine, he considered uh, Mary Arbuckle to be the prettiest, and so he moved her out to Minidoka County, Idaho. And Carl Cromroy and Mary Arbuckle married on July 25th, 1924 in Casha County, um, but they, by all accounts, they lived on a ranch near Paul. She became stepmother to his four children, though Liotta had married in 1921. Weldon, the youngest son, was about 12 years old. The couple lived just down the road from Carl's brothers, August and Emil Crumroy, and that's going to be very important here in just a little bit. So soon after the wedding, Mary manages to convince Carl to change the beneficiaries of his insurance policy from his children to herself and herself alone, which is um, the main red flag uh, or red flag number one. Um The marriage actually seemed fairly normal for about a year until October 1925 when Carl starts to get sick and he slowly gets worse over about nine days and he dies on October 23rd, 1925. The death record listed his cause of death as intestinal obstruction due to hernia following appendectomy. But I think basically what that sort of comes down to is it was just a really bad stomach flu that he gets or intestinal influenza, which I did know is that was like intestinal influenza sounds way worse than the stomach flu yeah but that's because we know it as the stomach flu <laughs> so brothers august and emil start to become suspicious especially given the change of insurance payout soon before his death mary actually received two thousand dollars in payment as the death was originally ruled uneventful even with payout property fell into the hands of mortgage companies soon after her death so she didn't really even get to keep property as a result of this she didn't use the two thousand dollars to try to keep up the property so the brothers pressure the state to exhume carl and carl was exhumed on march 2nd carl's stomach and liver was sent to the state chemist wv leonard for analysis and an investigation begins uh, by prosecuting attorney hv creason 
And so, 10 days after Carl is first exhumed, Mary is arrested on March 12th, 1926, on a charge of first-degree murder. Um, After her arrest, some other organs are sent to private chemists and the Utah State chemist, Herman Harms. So his name is Dr. Harms, which is funny. Um, Right? (laughs) But they're sent to verify the findings. So before district court, Leonard testified that he discovered arsenic in the portion of a liver, approximately, quote, two grains in the entire organ, which I assume is a lot. That doesn't sound like a lot, but I guess if it's poison, that's like a lot. Like, I don't know if you think like a grain of salt is like that amount of poison. I yeah, don't know. Most I guess of the time you just don't want poison. In yeah, your body no, you're in right. <laughs> Absolutely. So expert testimony stated that this amount was sufficient to cause death, and then they also wanted to make sure that arsenic wasn't used in the embalming fluid, but it was determined that arsenic was there before the death. Mary stated that her brothers-in-law were prosecuting her because they were upset about the money, branding their claims quote utterly false. The brothers responded, quote, we have no interest in the insurance money and under the law could not possibly acquire any interest in it, whatever the outcome of the murder case. Mrs. Crumroy knows this. She also knows that she has collected the insurance and has disposed of and placed these monies beyond the reach of any even possible lawful claimants. The accused says, all I want is justice. We want her to have justice. Yes, absolute justice under the law. Nothing more, nothing less. Wow. This sounds just like Lida. Right? Oh my gosh. This is uh there are some some similarities yeah, between Lida and our good friend Mary. So jury selection starts on September 9th, 1926. It took four days and nearly a hundred prospective jurymen to finally fill the jury box. Wow. And at this um, once her trial starts, Mary pleads not guilty. The newspapers make a really big deal about Mary's daughter, Myrtle, um, whose last name is now Arne, because she she came into town from Illinois. And so there's apparently an investigation being made into Myrtle as being an accomplice. So supposedly, Myrtle bought a vial of Fowler's solution, which contains about 1% arsenic, which originally Fowler's solution is used as like a tonic for illnesses but it has this arsenic in it. And so supposedly she bought it in Illinois and then mailed it to her mother. Myrtle refused to make any comment on her role in the case and was, quote, far from a willing witness on any matter adverse to the defendant. So she didn't want to testify against her mother. Weldon Crumroy, who was Carl's youngest son, was kept in the custody of the sheriff as a witness for the prosecution. But he, quote, evinces no animosity against his stepmother as based upon reported visits of the boy with his stepmother, which is interesting. Like, he's not mad at her. He doesn't seem to not want to see her. They've met which I'm, I really wish I knew more about that relationship because I think that would be, like, did she like her stepkids? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that would have been a really interesting detail to know. So anyway, the trial gets underway on September 17th, 1926. And according to a Daily Statesman article, the courtroom is packed with spectators, mostly women. Now, the Utah State chemist, again, Dr. Harms, and the Idaho State chemist, Dr. Leonard, were the first witnesses on the stand. Dr. Harms stated that he found arsenic in the examined organs and, quote, found no other poison with the exception of a few traces of metallics that were not unnatural and would not have caused death. So the said quantities of poison in Carl's stomach corresponded with quantities of poison found in other bodies wherein death had resulted from poison. And he testified that arsenic was found in flypaper and, quote, explained a method by which a solution of arsenic might be made from the paper. And as Anthony has brought up, is this starting to sound a little bit familiar? Oh, a little 
little bit. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So Leonard and then two, even two more other doctors. One was named Homer Saxon. He was a Twin Falls pathologist. And another, Dr. Fair Kennedy. Um, he was a Rupert physician. They all testified of finding arsenic in the organs of Carl. The defense cross-examined the doctors who admitted that there were other possible causes for the death, but overwhelmingly it really seemed like it was arsenic poisoning. During the trial, Mary, quote, expressed no emotion and at times earnestly conversed with her attorneys. During the testimony of Dr. Harms, she seemed intensely interested. At the recess, she spent most of the time conversing with her children. As the trial moved on, the Daily Statesman described her starting to show signs of concern. Quote, her physical appearance is beginning to show signs of the strain she is under. Her face, pale and drawn, emphasizing the lines of her chin and jaw, seemed to indicate considerable worry, and recently her composure has been marked by a certain absent-minded nervousness. But she still remained optimistic about her acquittal, saying the charge came out of Emile and August's attempts to get the insurance money. So she's really sticking by this excuse, despite the fact that they came out and said, we couldn't even get this money if we wanted it. We just want justice. So after nine days of jury selection and testimony, three more Rupert physicians take the stand to, again, corroborate evidence of arsenic poisoning. They are really hammering this home with the doctors. So next, the prosecution calls Sheriff A.B. Cole and Deputy Sheriff W.F. Manifold. And they testified that they talked with Mary in her cell, and she said that she was the only one who had administered to Carl during his illness, but that she had never received a Fowler solution from her daughter. An attorney from Paul, Edward H. Richards, stated that he spoke with Carl Crumroy before his death, and he said that he wanted to make his second wife the beneficiary of his life insurance, but he could not pay the premium, and supposedly Mary actually stepped in and said that she would pay for it herself. During all of this, spectators did not dissipate. They were on the edge of their seats. Quote, the entire seating space of the courtroom was occupied by women, a number of whom brought their lunch and remained through the noon hour. This is... A, a spectacle yeah. to behold women are this is this is like soap opera kind of Judy, stuff like absolutely yeah <laughs> this is days of our lives, of our lives. <laughs> in the 1920s so two days later on september 23rd a bombshell is dropped on the court and the state charges that letters that myrtle arn had turned over to the state had been substituted for the originals the state contended that Myrtle actually rewrote letters and placed them in the original envelopes to pass off the letters as between herself, having passed between herself and her mother. Um, Sheriff Manifold said he actually had made copies of portions of original letters that he thought would have an important bearing on the case, and that the letters turned over by Myrtle did not match what Manifold had copied. The defense attorney, Herman H. Hosier, tried to object to the evidence, but he was overruled. So supposedly, the original letters told her children what to say in case they had to testify. There's one excerpt that's printed in the Daily Statesman article dated August 28th, 1926. So basically one month before this trial uh, is when this letter was written. And it says, quote, Myrtle, when you brought the Fowler solution last year, you never told them you wanted it for me, did you? Kid, you get a paper and you and Buddy, who is the nickname of her son Wilmer, go to all the different druggists and have them sign it that Mrs. Mary Arbuckle Crumroy had never bought any arsenic from them which is looking fishy so on september 24th mary takes the stand in her own defense and she wore a black hat and a brown coat with gray hose and gloves so she's fashionable and she tells the story of carl's illness how he grew worse she told of her affectionate care of him and visits of his brothers to the sick room 
Carl requested three doctors be called because he did not want his brothers to wait on them. So instead, he just said, just keep calling doctors. And she said, quote, he complained of his side hurting where he was operated on for appendicitis in 1921 and refused when I asked him whether to go to a hospital and get a trained nurse. Now, again, according to her own testimony, supposedly, August and Emil came to visit the night before Carl died and they had a bottle of whiskey with them. So when she prepared whiskey for Carl, she quoted August as saying, quote, my God, Mary, don't give him so much. You don't know what may be in it. She declared that neither the bottle nor the contents produced in the court by August, so by the brother, resembled that which the brothers produced the day before Carl's death. So she's saying they brought in a bottle of whiskey, but it doesn't look like what they brought to us before Carl died. For the most part, while on the stand, she expressed no emotion, quote, but on one occasion when testifying of the terrific pains suffered by her husband just before he died, she broke down and wept. Uh, the state prosecutor, interestingly, waived cross-examination of Mary, and he just let her, like, let her uh, statement stand. And this is, again, from the statesman, quote, an audience composed almost entirely of women crowded the courtroom Friday and murmured disappointment when the prosecution failed to cross-examine Mrs. Crumroy. They were hoping for drama. Yeah. So good. So the trial came to an end on Saturday, September 25th, about two weeks after jury selection first began. In their closing statements, the prosecutor, Creason, alleged that correspondence between Mary and Myrtle proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Mary was guilty of, quote, diabolical murder of her husband with arsenic poison. The assistant defense attorney, Felton, said the testimony of doctors was purely circumstantial and not enough to convict for first-degree murder, which doesn't seem circumstantial, but okay. <laughs> and then the lead defense attorney, Hosier, quote, took the floor and painted such an eloquent picture of the prosecution of the defendant by her brothers-in-law, August and Emil Crumroy, that a number of women in the packed audience wept. I mean, this is absolutely, like, this is what you would watch on TV. Right. Like, this is what these women are here for. So this is what Hozier, some of Hozier's comments. Quote, the defense believes that either Crumroy committed suicide by taking arsenic or Emil and August doped the whiskey which they brought for him the night before he died. It is a sad occasion when we must try a woman for first-degree murder on circumstantial evidence alone. And the jury retired at 6.37 p.m. to begin deliberation. Now, as we brought it before, the newspaper could not help but compare Mary's case to that of Lyda Southard, which had happened only five years before. Quote, because of its general similarity to the Lyda Southard case in Twin Falls several years ago, the Crumroy case attracted considerable attention throughout the country. And during the proceedings, the courtroom was crowded with spectators, the majority of them women. So let me ask you, do you think Mary was influenced by Lida's case? I think she could have been. I mean, it was national mm -hmm. that she totally would have known about it right. for sure. So. so I was curious to see if there had been anything published in Illinois, because that's where she would have been living at the mm -hmm. time of Lida's yeah. trial. And of course, there probably were more that weren't available on to what I have or on Chronicling America, but I did find an article from the Rock Island Argus and Daily Union, which was from Rock Island, Illinois, that detailed Lida's method of arsenic poisoning. Oh. And then the Chicago Eagle that stated that Lida had been convicted of second degree murder. So if she is seeing this, she's probably thinking this is how she did it. And when she did it, she got away with second degree. Mm -hmm. So which I mean, not that you want second degree murder, but you want second degree over first degree for sure. 
So I think it's totally plausible that Mary would have heard about this mm-hmm. and whether or not she was actually inspired by it, we will never know. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that also big in the news in the decades before both Lida and Mary was Jane Toppin, who was one of the U.S.'s first female serial killers. Um, she conducted many of her murders through poison and poison was often considered to be sort of a woman's preferred method um, in murder. So the question is, was she an inspiration as well? So early Sunday morning, several hours after they retired to begin deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict, guilty of murder in the second degree. So the jury actually voted 11 to 1 for um, first degree, um, but not being unanimous in their decision, they were forced to return uh, second degree. And so the next day, Judge T. Bailey Lee sentenced her to 50 years to life, and she entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on September 29th, 1926. So here are the statistics from her intake form. She was 44 years old when she was received, which that's a, that would be an 1882 date, so she'd be actually about 40 seven-ish born in ohio legitimate occupation she listed as housewife she was i think it says 68 inches but i think she was actually like 65 she was like five six five seven she had a medium to light complexion no weight listed brown hair blue gray eyes she was listed uh conjugal relations were married widow she had three children her father was living her mother died when she was 34 years old and she left the parents home when she was 16 she had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Baptist church and considered herself still a part of that church. She could read and write. She had six years of a common school education. Her habits of life, she was abstinent, and she did not have any former imprisonment, and the name of her nearest relative was Mrs. Myrtle Arbuckle Arn, who was her daughter. She had regular build and feature. Her condition of teeth, she had plates on the lower and the upper, um, so she had fake teeth obviously did not have a beard, no hat. She wore a size six boot. She, they found $2.88 on her person when she entered, and she had lived in Idaho for about two years. This season of Behind Gray Walls, Disturbing Justice, as well as the Disturbing Justice exhibit, were made possible by the Boise City Department of Arts and History and the National Endowment for the Humanities. We'd like to thank them for their generous support. Now come the events of why we're including Mary in our season of the riots. So, on the afternoon of January 7th, 1927, about three months after arriving, Mary stages a mini-riot of her own. So, an IDS article from January 9th titled, Mrs. Crumroy Sets Fire to Idaho Penitentiary Ward, says, Mrs. Mary Crumroy, serving a sentence of from 50 years to life in the Idaho Penitentiary for the murder of her husband, ran amok at the prison Friday afternoon and set fire to a pile of furniture in the women's ward before guards could restrain her. Three other women in the ward looked on. And those three other women would have been Lida Southard, Ava Bowman, who was in for inducing a girl to enter a house of prostitution, and Juana Wilson, who was in for robbery. Now, Mary had apparently piled a settee sofa, some chairs, and a rug together in the middle of the floor and set fire to them. Warden J.W. Wheeler said damage was minimal and no one was hurt, but he also said there was no doubt that she was insane. After her outburst, she was confined to her cell with a special nurse and was, quote, raving almost constantly. 
Prison officials waited for a probate court to find her insane with an order that would remove her to Blackfoot to the state asylum, which is now State Hospital South. Apparently, her attack was so violent that her heart became badly affected, and two days after the attack on Sunday was actually the first time she had finally calmed down and she was able to sort of sleep in intervals. But because of this heart condition, she was removed to St. Alphonsus Hospital in critical condition. And that's how bad this attack was and basically how worked up she got. She was not moved to Blackfoot until her physical condition permitted. While at the hospital, Judge John Jackson of Ada County Probate Court talked with her, and she said she could not remember a single thing that had happened on the day of her, quote, nervous attack. She said she had been suffering a severe pain in her head and had gone to the bathroom to wet a towel, hoping the coolness would bring relief. And then the next thing she remembered, she was in the hospital. So can you imagine if that is the case, that you just literally black out for several days? It wasn't just like she had the attack and then like later in the evening. It was, there were the two days between her attack and her being put in the hospital. It'd be crazy. So the order came on January 15th saying she was to be kept at the asylum for as long as she was still considered insane. But once she was better, she was to be returned to the state penitentiary. She entered the asylum suffering from hallucinations of sight and hearing. During her first stay at the State Hospital South, apparently her oldest son Clarence had also been in jail and he'd just been released. And he apparently, that Mary had corresponded with Myrtle about this lockup and Myrtle had said that he'd just gotten out. I could not find details as to why or where Clarence was in jail, but officials seemed really concerned that Mary would try to escape or that Clarence might try to break her out. But no such plot ever materialized. I don't know if it was just sort of a over concern. In the Indianapolis Times on February 17th, 1928, there was a man named Clarence Arbuckle, who was a suspect in the murder of two deputy sheriffs in Indianapolis. And at the time, Arbuckle and an accomplice had been arrested in Decatur, Illinois, and they admitted to burglarizing a pool room in Seymour, Indiana. Um, This same Arbuckle that had been arrested in Indianapolis had once been incarcerated in Lafayette. But I'm not sure if this is the same Clarence Arbuckle because there's a census record that lists a Clarence Arbuckle born around the same time, but in Indiana. Um, Seems more likely it's the second guy, but I don't know. So I would have thought that the name like Clarence Arbuckle would have been a clear shot, but it's it's not. So anyway. That was another rabbit hole I went down. So um, an IDS article stated on October 29th, 1927, about nine months after entering the Mary, was returned to the pen showing no signs of, quote, mental affliction. And Warden Wheeler said, quote, she seems to be entirely rational now. But this sentiment would not last long. Because on the morning of November 5th, 1927, Mary piled furniture against one of the cell doors in the building and then against one of the doors leading from the outside into the yard. She set fire to both piles with coals from the kitchen stove, which I'm trying to figure out how she even grabs. Right, this yeah. would be so hot. So in the process, she smashed several panes of glass in the kitchen as well as several dishes. And interestingly, the same three women who had witnessed her first riot were the same three women who witnessed this one. No other women inmates had come or gone between the two incidents, which I think is really interesting. Um, They actually, they had one woman came two days after this event, but none in between. So it's the same Lida, uh, Juana Wilson, and Ava Bowman. So Jack Watkins, he was actually superintendent of the prison farm, had discovered the fire first and he raised the alarm. And when Warden and the guards opened the door to the yard, they found Mary throwing chunks of coal into the flames. And for whatever reason, that's kind of a funny 
and maybe it's I'm not imagining it in a nice way, but I just imagine her just like in a frenzied state, almost like yeah. laughing, throwing yeah, coal manic. into the yeah. fire, oh. which is it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. So she was so like out of control that officials needed a straitjacket to subdue her. Once the fire was put out, between $400 and $500 worth of damage was done, including complete destruction of the piano, a sewing machine, and the phonograph, as well as a chair, a mattress, and some blankets. Glass in window panes had been broken by the heat, and some of the cement was damaged as well. So once again, she was taken to St. Alphonsus to be kept under observation by the prison physician O.H. Parker. By November 29th, Mary was at St. Alphonsus, but feeling much better. Dr. Parker said she talked rationally, that she had told him she didn't mind returning to the prison, but did not want to be sent to Blackfoot, as the prospect was, quote, unpleasant. Nevertheless, on September 28th, she was sent back to Blackfoot, where she would spend most of her sentence with physicians calling her, quote, unbalanced. Uh, Because a majority of her sentence was spent at State Hospital South, we don't have much information about her time there. Um, As early as 1928, Mary prepared to file a pardon application, hoping to appear before the Board of Corrections in October of that year. Obviously, that pardon was not granted. So between 1931 and 1937, she worked as a cook and a housekeeper at the superintendent's residence. And the superintendent, his name was Charles Lowe, he found her, quote, thoroughly reliable and efficient. So she began filing a new pardon application in late 1937, and Charles Lowe wrote glowingly on her behalf, saying he would like to see her released and have her work at the Idaho State School in Nampa for $45 a month. Someone named Bird Trago, which is a great name, they wrote at the Daily Bulletin, which was a small publication released by the Idaho Republican and Blackfoot, and this person wrote on her behalf, and he said, I'm assuming it's a he. He said he believed she was unfairly tried in the community of Rupert, that the community was biased against her. And he says, quote, At the time of trial, I read the newspaper accounts of it and the accounts published in a Rupert newspaper, and they were manifestly colored against her. And evidence of the extent to which this coloring was carried was shown by a printing of a picture of an old hag and labeling it as a picture of Mrs. Crumroy, though there was no resemblance between them, and the selection must have been intentional, willful, and malicious. The published accounts of the trial teemed with venom against the defendant, and when the trial judge sentenced her, he showed his passion and prejudice by adding the statement in the sentence, and you will not be eligible to apply for a pardon until you have actually served for 50 years. So this person was saying she really should be let out. E.H. Kirkpatrick, a resident of Rupert, stated he was, quote, thoroughly convinced she is not a fit person to be at large among society. Sheriff Manifold, who attested at trial, along with prosecuting attorney H.V. Creason, both wrote asking not only that she be released, but that she be kept in the pen, not at the State Hospital South. Quote, H.V. Creighton is convinced that she was guilty of premeditated murder and that if this attempt had been successful, other murders would have followed as she was attempting to ensure the lives of her stepchildren. And without question, Crumroy was killed for his life insurance, which I don't I didn't find any evidence of her having trying to insure her stepchildren. I don't know why as a stepmother, if she would have been able to get that insurance money. In August 1938, Mary wrote the Board of Pardons on her own behalf, quote, I most respectfully plead with your honorable body for a pardon at this time, and that I may accept employment with Dr. and Mrs. Charles E. Lowe of the Idaho State School and Colony at Nampa, Idaho. In the more than 10 years of my incarceration, I have never willingly broke a rule or regulation of the institution, and sincerely assure you that my conduct will be as exemplary and circumspect if given favorable consideration. 
but she was not granted a pardon in 1937 or 1938. A year later, in 1939, she wrote the Board of Pardons again, asking this time to be released to live with her children in Illinois, citing age and excessive sentence as reason for her pardon. Quote, my health is in no sense what it should be, as I am highly nervous throughout confinement here. However, I believe the prison records will show an absolute release from Dr. Lowe, showing that I had, in 1937, entirely recovered my health. If you see your way clear to release me at this time, I assure you your actions will be appreciated by myself and my children. Despite multiple objections, Mary was fully pardoned on July 6, 1941. She served 14 years, 9 months, and 15 days. She would have been about 62 years old, according to the census, or about 58 if her intake form is correct. Now, I'm unsure of Mary's whereabouts after her release. Um, Myrtle, to whom she seemed close, lived in Springfield, Illinois, with her three kids, and Myrtle's husband had actually died in the 1930s. Her youngest son, Wilbur, lived in Macon County, Illinois, with his wife, um, and it's possible that Mary went to live with Myrtle or with Wilbur, but since the 1950 census has not been released yet, I'm not sure if she did, where she was living, and I could not find a definitive death record for her either. I searched for the names Mary Crumroy, Mary Arbuckle, Mary Cramblett. I'm not sure what name she would have used after her release. She doesn't use seem to use the name Crumroy in any records after she's finished. So... Huh. That is all that I've got. Um, wow. It did take a, take a while. No, that's great. That is That was so awesome. <laughs> I, Mary's story is mm-hmm. like one of those ones that it's just so visual because you mm-hmm. just I can just see her piling all those yeah. things out in the front yard. And every, every time someone's like, tell me a crazy story about the women's award, that's the one that I always like yeah, go to. So I've, I've been waiting for it, you to do this on the podcast Perfect. for some time, and it was like riot season. Riot yeah. season. Yeah, let's get. Yeah, because this is the closest thing that we have to a riot, if, unless you count the escapes. But yeah. even, I mean, those were a little bit different. They weren't quite riotous in yeah. nature. Yeah, and hers like wasn't necessarily. It was mostly a mental. Yeah, yeah. Probably breakdown. Yeah, sort it of, seems sort of. Which thing. again, that's a really intense. Oh, to yeah. black out and to just because she doesn't seem to show any once she's kind of away from the prison i yeah. think there was even a record that said like it will show that she two weeks away from the prison she was almost fully recovered yeah. so for whatever reason being stuck in prison i don't know because she was with lida and then two women who actually like ava bowman seems really like low-key yeah wana wilson maybe was a little bit more dastardly but not even in that much of a sense and she you know like it doesn't seem like conditions in the women's ward would have been enough to just cause such an insane a, a, a bad break right but i mean we don't know yeah. we don't know you know much I, about her really so it's easy for me to say right because i've not an, been locked yeah. up in prison i i wonder if she and Lida ever discussed their cases with each other. That would be so interesting. I, I don't know. I don't think it's the perfect example, but like the Telltale Heart. Like mm, I hate that book. Or that story <laughs> terrified me as a seventh grader. But that like Lida is the reason that she got sure, this thought in sure. her head in, while she was in Nebraska and like Right. Or in Illinois. Or in yeah. Illinois. And now she finds herself in the same little confined that space as Lida and like Oh, so interesting. That's, that I, I wish that I could ask her, like, did you know about that? Because yeah. it's a real similar. Right. Oh 
fly on the wall on the conversations or do you think like Lida found out about it and what do you think she was like jealous or do you think she was like, like copycat? yeah or yeah. do you think she just like hmm interesting yeah you tried one time yeah 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 right yeah that would be so interesting wow cool great work Scott. well thanks for letting me do this yeah. oh my gosh thank you for doing it yeah. <laughs> all right everybody well do your own time and do your own number we'll see you next week if you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.